Buddhism and everything teaches this whole idea of balance, satiety, just it's okay to be okay. Um, and, and I think our society, because of the amount of stimuli that we have, from video games to computers to going out to, you know, with the tyranny of choice, really, you know, we have so many choices, so many different experiences. Don't Hide the Scars, a weekly podcast focused on addiction and recovery. Created by the nonprofit Pain, parents and addicts in need, and founded by Flint Anderson. Welcoming to Don't Hide the Scars, Ted Perkins. He's a former uh, executive for Warner Brothers Universal Studios, the creator of Recovery Movie Meetups. Thank you for joining the founder of Parents and Addicts in Need, Flint Anderson, and myself, Jason Lachance, on Don't Hide the Scars. It's great to be with you guys. I'm, I'm really excited to know more about the work that you're doing the fine what i've heard so far is just terrific and and to all your audience members i am of service and so happy to be uh, on your show today hey, thank you ted absolutely Love you. yep well you know you got to like i was telling you and you you know i guess we've known each other about a month big film buff and flint is as well and of course you know we we we're working on a second part of the documentary series don't hide the scars so it's just I think we were joking. We need a reprieve and a fun conversation yeah. with someone because some of our shit's been heavy lately. So, um, okay, I'll, I'll light it up. Yeah, I mean it's Perfect. exciting. I've been digging through your book, Addict, uh, addicted in film, and you know it's uh, there's just a lot of brilliance that that comes out through be it fiction, nonfiction work that I think the new recovering addict, let alone or, or long term for that matter can really get out of how to film TV documentaries and so on. Yeah. Even songs. I mean, you know, there's a, there's a great song from Billy Joel, Billy Joel, big shot. Yeah. Uh, went downtown with your limousine. Can't remember all the things you said. Not sure you want to know heads on right. fire. I mean, I remember listening to that thinking, Oh, that's what happens when you party too much. And then <laughs> right. I party too much. I'm like, now I know what he's singing about. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the yachts and the uh, all that stuff and the Hollywood peoples yeah. and everything else. Uh, yeah. huh? uh, yeah. So how I won't I don't think we've discussed this, you and I, but how do you really see with recovery movie meetups when something happens and the discussions start, how this really plays out and starts to help people like those aha moments and stuff? Well, that's that's a great question. I mean, it happens, uh, you know, aha moments or something. You know, I've been studying this for a while, um, both sort of like in research and psychology, psychology papers and clinical papers. And and I've done a lot of research and I and actually I just wrote a blog about it, which I'm happy to share with your audience as well, um, about sort of like the anatomy of what aha moments really are. And, you know, at, at the at the base, an aha moment is really sort of like this profound moment where you have a axial shift, like a paradigm shift in your mind, where you really just you change your mind. <clears throat> you decide unequivocally without reservation that, you know, you need to change something. It could be something like, you know, we change our minds all the time. And usually the mundane things of like, I'm going to change my the flavor of my coffee creamer. And that's OK. No big deal. But. Other things are more painful. I'm going to change career. That's painful. You know, I'm going to change my relationship. That's super painful. Mm -hmm. um, you know, whatever you change something, you're going up against, you know, forces of opposition, forces that want to make you stay where you are. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, when people wake up in the morning, their ego is this heavily fortified fortress that defends who they are right now, justifies who they are right now, 
wants to stay the way, the way that they are right now because has gone through their whole life defending who they are right now to make them believe that they are okay, that they're good, they have meaning, purpose, and everything is logical. And when you sort of upset the apple cart with an aha moment of like, okay, the biggest change potentially I think is, is uh, to quit alcohol or drugs when addiction and everything is so much part of your foundation of your social life, your personal life, how you deal with stress, everything. Um, that's a profound change of mind. <clears throat> and so, you know, in traditional rehab or, or just in everyday um, experience, most people experience aha moments. They can have like a spiritual awakening through AA. They could hit rock bottom and, and encounter so much pain and fear that that motivates them to change. That's that's not a preferred method of getting somebody to change their mind. But sometimes um, that is the result. And, and the criminal justice system and certain elements of the penal, moralistic, uh, I would say right-leaning uh, area of the country believes that that is the only way, that only through pain and suffering can you find redemption. Perhaps that's true. We can't really debate that, but that's just another way of finding that aha moment. And then you can have you know, perhaps shame, you know, like I said about Billy Joel, you know, you, you said something last night and, and a lot of people that come to my smart recovery meetings, I give meetings every Wednesday night, they, they are coming from a position of shame. Like, I can't believe I did this. I really, I was at this office party and, you know, et cetera. And, and that's a big motivator to, to change your mind. But at the very core, sometimes the decision to change your mind comes from seeing somebody else changing their mind or seeing somebody else um, go through rock bottom or go through shame. Um, you know, if you wanted everybody to feel shame, rock bottom, fear, terror, um, anxiety, withdrawal, to get them to get to that aha moment, well, that's fine. But in a therapeutic setting, you can't do that. You don't want to do that because that's going to lead to a lot of stress and anxiety and probably lead them to relapse. Mm -hmm. So rehab is not about throwing all those things at you. Rehab is about giving you a space to think and reflect. And that's why in recovery movie meetups, when you see other people hitting rock bottom, when you see people in movies having, you know, spiritual moments or conversion moments or uh, going down the rabbit hole or making mistakes or trying to remedy them or going to rehab or getting positive results and then encountering problems, you know, in all the all of the movies that we cover, uh, there are moments of where people can look at that and say, oh, that mirrors what I've seen in my life. And I'm so glad I don't have to experience it, but gosh, you know, just the same way that you would learn the lessons if you had to experience those things in real life, you can learn the lessons just by watching them in films. Mm -hmm. And so um, that is, a and realize that most people undervalue the value of films. You know, people watch romantic movies and romantic comedies because they secretly long to have all of the adventure and passion that's wound up in these films. It's sort of like vicarious learning. That's that's what movies are all about. They're about identification with the characters. I've worked in the movie business for a long time and I write movies and TV shows. I always concentrate and most good filmmakers and TV people, they concentrate on the audience's ability to identify with a character. Yeah. If you have a character who's ir irresponsible, stupid, uh, facile, silly, you know, people are not going to root for that person. They don't really care. Um, and so whatever happens to them, if bombs blow up or the atomic, you know, whatever, Nobody gives a shit because they're not a likable <laughs> character. But in these movies that are in recovery movie meetups, the 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 filmmakers have gone to great lengths to really make these characters accessible, relatable, 
and 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 generate a lot of empathy. And in doing that, um, I think people can really connect with those characters and take a lot from the recovery movie meetups discussions of those films. Yeah. Flint, do you have particular characters that stand mm-hmm. out to you from some of the, I mean, we're always talking about different movies around. Have you watched this one? What do you think of that one? I know recently we talked 28 days and of course, you know, my favorite one, clean and sober, Michael Keaton. Right, 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 right. Oh yeah. Yeah. The re- recovery movies. Um, I, I, I actually like them. Look, when I'm looking at a, at a recovery movie, it's, it's more about finding even, even there, it's almost like going for me, going to a meeting, you know, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to find out that one, two, three, four, five things in there that I can relate to. You know, mm-hmm. because because again, in recovery, not everybody agrees with everything that's going on with it. Um, so, but but yeah. but but again, it's got to be. I got to be able to relate to a character. That's that's without a doubt. Um, and yeah. and 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 I'll tell you what, tw- twenty eight days for whatever. Because 28 days can be a little giggly, you know, uh, I guess that's the only, I don't know if that's a real word either, Ted. <laughs> um, but, but that was, that was my last stint at Betty Ford. I mean, oh. in, in, in essence, everything that happened in 28 days, short of falling out of the damn tree, okay, yeah. what, what was, was my stay at Betty Ford. I had more fun in my last, in my last treatment center than I'd ever had before. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's 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 just it was unbelievable when I when I watched that movie. Yeah. Well, and I think that brilliance is something like that is twenty eight days to touch on. You see that that process of the veil coming off uh, mm. with so many different scenarios. Obviously, was it Vigo Mortensen, right? Kind of the heartthrob character was yeah. a baseball player, and you know they her Sandra Bullock's character and him get this camaraderie kind of going, and so. It's one of those. I mean, I don't know Flynn, how many people do you know that you've had that we've had to warn. You're going to treatment. This isn't about finding romance. It's right. about getting clean, and of course they do, and then that goes to shit once they get out of there. And it and it happens in rehab. I mean, it, yeah. uh, let's just face facts. It does. And by the way, and I can mention this gentleman's name. He has he has since passed, and it's been it's been years. But but uh, 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 Mortensen's character in there. Was was my first roommate was a guy named Dave Smith who was the pitching coach for the San Diego Padres, you know. And I looked at him one day and I said, "Jesus, Dave," I said, "They've got a drunk for a for a pitching coach." I go, "No wonder you're in last place," you know. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. It's one of the things about uh, you know, and then back to clean and sober for a second. Um, Clean and sober, you know, he's in and out of rehab very quickly, and then he's out on his own, and he tries to strike up this this romance with this girl, with this lady who has her own, you know, situation and problems. And it really is sort of like, and that's an important story because it sort of teaches us how, you know, when you come out of a situation where you have to reinvent your life, you grasp on sometimes to other people who might be entirely the wrong people. And you put this delusional thinking that, oh God, this person really is the solution to my problems. Um, This person really can help me. I love this person. And yet you're not looking at all of the warts. Um, right. You're not looking at all the imperfections or the things that are wrong about that person. You're like living in this delusion of like, okay, this person can help. And you know, maybe they can, but ultimately, uh, you know, being in a situation where you're so fresh out of rehab, it's not necessarily the mindset that's going to give you the most objective appreciation of somebody else's long-term benefit to your recovery and to your life. 
And so I think a lot of people make very rash decisions because they want to go back to a sense of belonging, normalcy, love, affection, you know, a restoration of what they lost because they've lost something. They've lost partners. They've lost, you know, et cetera. And, um, and that sometimes is not the best idea. You know, I think there's a statistic that X percent of people who fall in love and rehab, it never works out. Um, and, and a lot of times I think a lot of people, when they get out of rehab, if they, if they're hanging out with the person they were in rehab with, sometimes they both allow themselves to drink or use together. And it becomes mm-hmm. like a compounding issue. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying that happens all the time, but it can. Um, but, you know, I think, um, I think most as human beings, I think what clean and sober teaches us is that sometimes we are so desperate or so in need of love, appreciation or acceptance or just recognition that sometimes we'll, you know, throw throw the baby out with the bathwater and attach ourselves to individuals who are clearly uh, not the right people, but we don't see it at the time. We're completely blinded to it. Now, of course, you know, hindsight is 2020. I look back at my past relationships with certain people, like, what was I thinking? (laughs) Um, And, you know, you kind of beat yourself up about it. But, you know, the point is you really weren't thinking because, you know, it's it's a very emotional decision. And then again, that brings up, you know, the idea that movies, you know, by showing that and exploring that topic sort of like kind of teaches you a lesson in a way that like, hmm, we should take a step back, slow down. And and E. Emmett Walsh says it so perfectly in Clean and Sober. He says, you know, an, an addicted, an addict needs to understand how irrational their thinking is to think that you could cl- fix that lady. You know, yeah. do, do you understand how irrational that is? Yeah. You know, what makes you think that? Only an addict would think like that. Right. Yeah. Well, it does such a great job and it's so important for 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 people, not only the addict themselves early in recovery and let alone throughout. I mean, we all have our character defects, but for their loved ones to understand this too. And you nailed it right there. Like, you know, the insane, I really connect with it. The insanity that Michael Keaton's character is going through. He he's not using, but he's so attached. Like you said, to that idea, this fantasy, if I get it straight with this person and we have this, and I get her out of this toxic environment of this abusive relationship and we're together, life is going to be great (laughs) and it's anything but anything but anything but and it also makes me think too and i'm sure you've gone through this point and you ted and i'm not disparaging uh 12-step groups or anything because they've been amazing they've saved my life but not everybody that's in those rooms should be your friend right because some people you know, there's still some of those, like I said, those defects and some people you're just not going to mesh with. Right. Right. I, I think also, too, that that and, and Ted, you, you you basically said it. But, you know, and we can all, I, I'll take my situation. You know, for so long, I didn't have that. And I'm still married to the same woman. I mean, we, we just celebrated 44 years last Friday, um, which thank you, which is well, it's amazing on her part because my ass should have been gone a long time ago. Um, but. You know, when I walked in there, I I didn't have a relationship with my wife. I didn't have a relationship with anybody. You know, all of a sudden I'm having a little fun after I got through the detox phase. I'm being paid attention to by by 
both sexes, all right, by men and and women in a, in a in a in a in an extremely nice way, and then all of a sudden you have a good looking woman walk by, and you're going whoa, um, and wow, she's actually talking to me, you know, kind of a thing, and it never started with any sexual ideas, but it's just that idea of my God, somebody actually likes me, and 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 it go it went through my mind is oh they can they're going to understand me as well, you know, yes. well, you know what everything you said now comes into play because yeah. right I, I i mean because we don't think we 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 ha- we don't have our 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 brain has not gotten back to the point where we're even thinking rationally anymore you know mm-hmm. and and that just takes so much time we talk so much about the brain around here and you know mm-hmm. and and how long it takes for that brain to to get back to a place that we can actually understand um, what we're, what we're trying to do here, you know, mm-hmm. because we have, we have taken our addiction and it, and that is as a much a behavioral thing, uh, as it is a physical addiction. Mm-hmm. And so changing yeah. behavior in 30 day program, sorry, fellas, that don't work. You know, uh, it, it, it takes years for, for those, for that brain to come back. So. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And we, we all want desperately to go back to quote normalcy, even though, Normalcy is something that we were trying to get away from when we were using. Right. It's all all very cat and mouse, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. We don't even know what the hell that means. Life is cagey, man. It's it's sort of like (laughs) quantum quantum indeterminacy, you know. (laughs) New Perceptions North, the premier drug and alcohol treatment and recovery center in Central California. A full continuum of medically supervised top quality care with programs for detox, inpatient residential treatment with dual diagnosis, intensive outpatient treatment, sober living, support groups, and more. With 50 plus years of combined experience and sobriety, Flint Anderson and Thelma Gatlin Wilson provide adult men and women with the highest caliber of professional health care, treating each client with compassion and respect in a safe, comfortable environment to begin the process of recovery to proudly create and sustain a life without addiction, call 559-978-1507 or visit newperceptionsnorth.com. Hey, Ted, I, wa- I want to ask you because uh, several years ago, I had uh, I had a client that I was uh, I was working with and he was an older gentleman and um, was not an AA guy. I mean, not, not, not at all. And, uh, and I am, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a 12 step guy. I think even non addicts and alcoholics ought to, ought to do the 12 steps. Um, but I went to a smart recovery meeting in LA. I absolutely loved it. Absolutely loved it. Can you give our listeners a little background on smart recovery? Because before we get off the air, I want to know where yours is, because I get down to LA often. I want to know where, where yours is and what time it starts and what day. So, well, um, yes. Well, S- Smart Recovery is um, is another mutual support meeting format among many. I mean, there's AA, 12 Steps, there's Life Ring, Dharma Recovery, In the Rooms. Um, but that's not a format. That's just uh, an organization. <clears throat> and there's Recovery Movie Meetups. Recovery Movie Meetups has now joined the pantheon of mutual support meeting options that are clinically validated and supported by evidence and evidence-based Um and, um, and smart recovery really is different in several respects from traditional meetings in the sense that it's very pragmatic. It's very much like self-helpy. 
So it's got, uh, it's based on, you know, REBT, rational motor behavioral therapy, inspired a lot by stoicism from the Greeks and the Romans through to Albert Ellis um, of the 1980s and 90s. It's been around for 25 years and it's, it's four points are pretty simple, like building and maintaining motivation, uh, coping with urges, managing your thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, and living a balanced life. I think the meat and potatoes of it is really the um, managing your thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Because in my meeting, and my meeting is Wednesday night, it's online only. Um, and I can send you the link. Um, okay. And everybody is welcome to join. We have a great group. It's really fun. We'd laugh a lot and uh, recover very strongly. A um, lot of success stories coming out of our meetings all the time. It's just, it's so inspirational. I'm really, truly honored and humbled by by the results so far. You know, everybody's doing such great work. And SMART really helps because, you know, your life is happening and you, something happens and, or somebody happens and somebody says something to you or something happens to you or you remember something. Um, and uh, SMART says, look, you know, unconditional life acceptance, you know, accept what's happening to you. You can choose to think this as a terrible negative, or you can choose to think of it as a potential positive. That is the choice that you can make. You know, we have within the space between, and Victor Frankel, I think, believe said this, is the space between what happens and what we do about it lies our greatest freedom in that we can really choose. And I, I was actually having this conversation with my daughter this morning about her braces. She's upset about getting braces this afternoon. And I'm like, look, you know, you can get upset about it and grumble for the next year, or you can turn this into something positive, but that is entirely up to you. And I know it takes energy to do that. And so SMART gives you the tools and the energy and the inspiration to do that work of trying to fill in different ways of looking at that, managing your thoughts. Like don't, don't believe everything you think. Um, you know, step back. Is it so terrible? Is terrible the right word? Can you exchange that word for less optimal? Um, can you exchange, you know, screwed up for remedial? Can you can you exchange words? Can you exchange concept and set goals around just trying to change your thinking to get positively better results? And because, you know, thoughts lead to uh, actions and actions, of course, have consequences. And and, and actions over time lead to your destiny and your outcome and ultimately your legacy. And so, you know, by thinking more clearly, you can really affect everything about your life going forward. And it's not, you know, there's no such thing as fatalism. Everything is created by you and your own mind at every moment in time. And you have ultimate authority to do that. A lot of people are very passive. They think that life is happening to them. But I, I believe in most people do that you have to make life happen for yourself. People are looking for meaning and things when really the work is to create the meaning for yourself. Like this is meaningful for you. You created this podcast. I'm here. This has been created because there's a, a quest for what is meaningful. And um, it didn't just find you, we created this. And people, when they have that empowerment in smart recovery, it, it leads them to make better decisions and to be more positive. And it helps them with them. Um, and then there's like day-to-day -day things of like managing, you know, coping with, with with uh with triggers and urges you know little exercises you can do to to sort of distract yourself for five minutes and fill out a, a couple of questionnaires and things and there's something about putting experiences down on paper which is yep. the basis of recovery movement meetups is that when you put your answers down on paper it takes on an objective reality it comes out of your head and then you're looking at it and it takes on more validity in a sense it becomes more real 
when it's written down. And so SMART uses a lot of exercises to help people take these thoughts out of their heads, put them on paper, and then look at them with the sheer cold rationality of an objective point of view and say, huh, all right, maybe I can do this differently. Okay, my boss fired me. Great. I'll find another job. I will find another job. Life will be, maybe it's good that I didn't have this job for too long. I was unhappy with this job. I know losing a job sucks and, and you know, it's not like rainbows and butterflies and unicorns all the time. Life sometimes really stinks. Sometimes people suck really bad. You know, there's some real assholes out there and nobody's saying, nobody's, nobody's saying that you need to forgive people or, you know, give them a free pass, but you can decide smart teaches you that you can decide how to deal with those people or whether to, you don't have to forgive them, but you can accept the fact that they exist in this world. And there's no such thing as fairness. Fairness goes away. That's a, that's a completely subjective idea. It's created by, you know, victory is, you know, history is written by the winners. There's no fair, there's no right, there's no wrong. There's just right. what the best that you can do with what you've given to optimize your own recovery and health. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. Fair. Fair's <laughs> out the window. It is. Cause, <laughs> Cause you know, like I told someone that was bitching once, I don't think I've ever told you this Flynn is at an AA meeting. Oh, life is not fair. And I went, thank fucking God. It's not. And he goes, what are you talking about? I go, I've only ever had one problem with drinking and driving. Do you know how many times I should have had problems? I'm willing to bet in the thousands. Yeah. So I'm pretty lucky and fortunate that life is not fair. <laughs> right. So sometimes yeah. you got to flip it on end a little bit and take a, take a bit of a different look at that. You bet. Yeah, that's that's a typical example of exchange vocabulary. Because, you know, even the worst of things, there's you, you can't have a silver lining to everything. I mean, there's, there's no silver lining to the Holocaust. I mean, it, it's really hard to, right. to do that. Certain things are really kind of like they are what they are. But we're dealing with um, we're dealing with just everyday life and things that happen to us. Nothing huge, nothing life threatening most of the time. And yet, you know, so, certain things happen to us and the beliefs that we create about small anxieties that lead to relapse, then lead to drastic real life consequences. So there's like a mismatch between the thing that provoked your issue to lead you to relapse to then on this side, the results of what that is, the repercussions of that are so severe. There's, it's like, wow, it's really the only thing that's mediating those, the connection between the, those two experiences is your thoughts are your thoughts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I had a basketball coach and this is the only thing I took away from him was uh, he used to say there's uh, there's three kinds of basketball players, Jason, those that uh, make things happen, those that watch ha things happen, and those who wonder what the fuck just happened. <laughs> what are you going to be? And I think that's just key for life. Yeah. You know, it's uh, I, I know it yep. took me a lot of work and I did with a, um, a mutual friend of Flint's and ours, this gentleman, Matt Gardner, some story work stuff where he really helped me reframe my my language with things. And, and I think you bring up such a valid point in our thought process. Our language dictates. It's like, look, if you're going to always call somebody whatever derogatory term, that's how you're always going to see them. That's how you're always going to think about yeah. it. So when you, you know, your, your words are part of your thought process and your pro thought process just dictates your life in general. Totally. 100%. It's totally. Yeah. I mean, we're sort of like, we're masters of so much and we think we're in charge of so little because life is so full of things that we can't control. Um, and it's just, 
literally when you think that you can control everything and people strive their whole life to control how much money they have, how much power they have, how much control they have, how much influence they have, all these things. Vladimir Putin is fighting every day to maintain yeah. that. Uh, but it's but it's really the thoughts that are the thing that really, really matter because at the end of the day, you control nothing. You know, or like Socrates, Socrates who, I, I see this from people who are much older. So the older I get, the more I realize I have absolutely no control over anything and right. I don't understand shit. Right. <laughs> right. Right. I, was, I was just going to say the older I get. And, and by the way, the older I get, I don't care. You know, yeah. I, I, I mean, honest to God, I, I really don't. I mean, there's a few things in life that that I I, I don't want to say I try to control. I try to maintain. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, the work, my, the business and, you know, and, and, and things like that. But, but man, there is something to be said for getting older. You know, I, really? I, I mean, when I see older guys that are still trying to, you know, my age, you know, I'm talking about, you know, late sixties, when I see guys at that age trying to control shit, it's like, dude, what, what is, what is wrong with you? You know, haven't you learned anything in life yet that you yeah. have no control over this? I mean, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, so I try to put those people off to the side a little bit. Uh, I just, I just, I, look, I, I'm in the fourth quarter. Okay. I, I, I'm not going to waste it on people that, that, uh, how do I put this, that aren't going to, I don't want to say benefit me, but I'm not going to waste it on people that um, are going to drain you that are just going to drain me dry. I mean, and you know, I mean, I've had a couple circumstances around here where, where, yeah, there's been some people that have drained me pretty good. Um, but you know, again, as time goes on, it's just, it's, it's time to get rid of them. Yeah. 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 It's, um, it's hard sometimes because, you know, we are creatures of habit and, you know, change is weird and, um, people will go to any length to avoid change. Um, that, but that's just, you know, the way of the world in, in a sense. If you or a loved one is struggling with addiction, please call Parents and Addicts in Need at 559-579-1551 or check us out online at painnonprofit.org. Follow us on social media at Pain Nonprofit. Please subscribe to the podcast and share with others wherever you get podcasts and on YouTube. To donate, please click the link in the description and help us save more lives gripped by addiction. Ted, we have a, one of our our flights well that flint really champions is when it comes especially what we're seeing right now with the the fentanyl crisis and the multitude of things that it's being mixed with and in the drug supply completely is uh our politicians understanding this thing of addiction because clearly they don't listen to any of us in recovery how do you think film might be able to help reach them yeah well you know that's um that's a uh, that's a really found question because you know on the one side films um, I've always advocated that films should not be in the filmmakers should not be in the business of making um, trying to enforce a point of view um, or a mandate or a political view or a solution or anything they're in the job of telling a story where the audience can hopefully glean what the messages are and what you know, good policies might be or what back best practices could be or should be. So like a documentary, like Tipping the Paint Scale that examines some of the failings of current drug policy is great for a documentary. And those those things are, you know, documentaries are great for that. Um, when it comes to the realm of fiction films, narrative films, I think um, any sort of um, 
direction that a person might want to take that's uh, overtly political or trying to find a solution is admirable, but it's also very risky. Um, but there are examples of those that have worked. Like, for instance, um, Dope Sick is a wonderful you know, series, yep. really like, explains a lot and shows the complete picture in a sense that like if some person at the policy level or anything watched that series, I think they would they would get a lot without being beat over the head with what the position is, because it's just a story about some bad things that bad people did. And also the semi-complicity of people who were thrown into the mix, who also got swept up because nobody's entirely innocent. And 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 the people who did it are not entirely guilty, even though it appears that they are. I mean, you know, listen, there's a there's a maker of the drug, there's a user of the drug. You know, there's sort of there are levels of of complicity. There are levels of uh, contributory negligence. I'm not saying the, the Sacklers should get off. I mean, they're assholes. They're complete fucking assholes. And, you know, they everything that happened, I can't believe they're not being prosecuted. I mean, they made a deal, whatever. But um, they will pay in some way, shape or form. And if there's, you know, if there's a if there really is a hell, I'm sure Sackler is going to be on a on a spit, slow turning, uh, you know, et cetera. <laughs> yeah. But um, but um, but I think that um, your movies coming out uh, that show just the um, the nuances of how uh, people who uh, are not necessarily making bad moral decisions get swept up in the opioid crisis or whatever. People who, you know, might start taking pain pills um, for, for actual pain, you know, were not aware of the fact that these things were highly addictive and they got lied to or they tried to do the right thing and they failed. Showing the, the problems that sometimes recovery is a very difficult, multi-pronged, you know, five-headed hedra that that doesn't have a, a solution a lot of times um, that that's important to show that um, to show. It's also important to show that some people do make bad decisions and uh, sometimes they are not going to find out what they need to find out through traditional means or through helpful things. And sometimes perhaps they do need a wake up call in the form of incarceration because they perhaps are narcissistic or selfish or just not self-aware enough, or perhaps again, Let's consider the fact that perhaps they're suffering from horrible trauma from the past or genetics or I mean, there's just so many things. And I think any movie that shows the totality of, the, of these issues without selecting a particular point of view as to this is what should be done, that's going to give people I think people need to understand the multiple points of view. So the person who the judge who's got a gavel and says, all right, you're going to go to jail for 90 days because you need to learn a hard lesson. That person needs to maybe perhaps by seeing a movie or, or being informed of the fact that, you know, maybe people in this sort of situation have had horrible trauma or come from families with, with uh, generational addiction and, you know, social pressures. And just, there's a lot of different reasons that go into things and that maybe, you know, incarceration is only going to make that person more bitter more detached, less able to self-awareness, more angry, more prone to act out when they get out of jail and more prone possibly to do the opposite of what that was intended to accomplish, which is recovery. They'll lash out and the minute they get out of jail, they'll go right back to their their um, their drugs or behaviors of choice because it's like, screw you to the system to put them there. Um, that's why smart recovery is actually kind of great in that respect because smart recovery has this wonderful program called inside out 
and that's running in prisons where they do smart recovery type meetings in prison. And the recidivism rate has gone way down for people who take these meetings. They actually do the work of recovery in the prison and the time when they come out, they don't relapse. I mean, the studies have shown that the relapse rates are super, super low because people have been given the tools to cope with the fact that they're going right back into that situation or that street where they used to buy drugs or the liquor store where they used to buy liquor. And now they have the tools to compete against those urges thanks to Smart Recovery and their program. Hence my point on long-term recovery for those with addiction. It's, it's, if you compare, I mean, that person being in jail, I love that, Ted. I, I mean, I absolutely love that, that, that these people are getting out and they're not relapsing. It's the same thing for the person that's not going to prison, if this makes sense. You cannot change people. You cannot even start the process in a 30-day program. When you're dealing with opioid use in particular, and, and, and all drugs, I, I, I mean, our, you, you know, our dopamine is gone. Our serotonin is gone. Our, our, our maturity level has been cut in half. I mean, it's a, it's a nightmare. And if we can uh, somehow get these people to understand, because A, our, our government county programs, those are broken so bad that those somehow need to be revamped. And I don't even think that's ever going to happen. But to keep somebody in treatment for 90 days to six months, they've got a shot at this. Yeah, yeah. yeah they everybody, do. everybody wonders why the relapse rates are so high. Well, God, it doesn't take a, a genius to figure this out. You have, you know, and insurance companies now are cutting are cutting down the time that people stay in. Like I said, I have I have a treatment center. They're cutting it down to 17 days sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, how the hell do we even start to do our jobs properly when yeah. we have that to contend with? You know, so it's it's I I, I love that. But we got to keep them in longer. Well, and I think the, the powerful thing, too, what you just shared, Ted, as well, is they're already being shown the light by connecting to a community that's headed in a good direction and that it mm -hmm. is possible. And I think with so many situations, you know, we're not showing them the, the light at the end of it, you know, I mean, through that, that 90 day, six month process, you know, it's one thing we just, but I mean, we know it, we just sit you in a cell or over here in a room or whatever, and nothing, you know, new is introduced because we're, you know, we're taking away this substance. We have to, but we've got to replace it with some other things. That's going to give you access to, like you mentioned, Flint, those four needed chemicals daily, dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, endorphins, there is a way, you know, there is a good community to connect with. And that is the power of what I think a lot of this can present. There is a better way. A movie that you and I love, Ted, Train Spotting. What is yes. it? What, what is part of the speech at the end? You and McGregor's character, choose life, choose a career, choose the nine to five, choose uh, what, like yeah. Frank and B, yeah. choose, you know, choose paying the, the car payment, you know, and all these things that we're all like, <laughs> Fuck that. I'm not going to, I'm never, I remember my, I'm never going to be that guy. I'm, I'm never going to get married and I'm never, you know, and it's like, yeah. no, that's, there's, there's so many beautiful rewarding things of just being like, I'm going to step into this stuff. Yeah. Well, and I think that, um, th I think this is touches on really, and I think train spotting is important for that reason. I write about that in Addicted in Film in the book is that, and also it's part of the movie Beautiful Boy as well. The subtext mm -hmm. that 
that ordinary everyday reality is broken, insufficient, um, that living in the in the middle with no highs and no lows is somehow a defeat that you've been morally defeated by the fact that you can't sustain this amazing lifestyle and euphoric highs and you can't get away with it oh too bad so sad and so you fight against entropy in a way but really in a sense um you know that's why buddhism and everything teaches this whole idea of balance satiety just it's okay to be okay um and and i think our society because of the amount of stimuli that we have from video games to computers to going out to you know with the tyranny of choice really you know we have so many choices so many different experiences i mean you think back you know 300 years ago you'd wake up you'd you'd pick some turnips you'd hope pray to god that you could eat that night and then you'd probably get smacked around by your father, mother, and then you'd go to bed. And that was like the same thing every day. And that was it. You know, you didn't have any books to read because you couldn't read. Um, and that's all you knew. But, you know, now we are bombarded with 42 billion different, you know, alternate realities. We can even go into virtual realities if we want to. There's so many means of escapism and vicarious experiences of so many other realities that it's hard to figure out. And so that the the fact that we have so much choice, all that freedom, but you know, as I say, I think Nietzsche, Nietzsche said that, you know, freedom uh, requires responsibility. Um, and that's where people falter is that, you know, with so much to choose from, A, where do you start? But the once you start with something, there's so much more. Um, so life in the middle, you can have all those things, but just in moderation, yep. all things in moderation. Oh, the challenge in life. <laughs> hey, Ted, because uh, you just tell it better, we got to talk some of your childhood because, my goodness, what a fascinating childhood. I just have to, you know. And I think it's it's important for, for the listener to, you know, hear how you were talking about, you know, a I'm one of those people, generational addiction. I mean, it can be traced back as far as we have the ability to do in my family, but... Um, yeah, your your story, you know, it's uh you're you're such an interesting guy. Well, the well, you know, growing growing up, uh it's funny, I was um it's one of those situations where alcohol was sort of like the superpower that was built into both my father's and mother's career, uh, and my career. And so it was sort of unavoidable. And um, and for many, many years, it was completely manageable. You know, my father didn't necessarily have an issue. My mother really never drank. Um, you know, it wasn't a problem. It was something that actually alcohol was a humongous asset for all of us. And it's, it's kind of weird to say that. But, you know, we grew up in the Foreign Service and uh, it was our job. My father's job and my mother's job was to throw parties, lavish parties. And, you know, um, the the government would pay us to buy alcohol and cigarettes and and host parties. I mean, we it's like the greatest gig in the world. Your job is to throw a party. Now, yes, of course, my father had to go in the office and manage foreign policy and and try to work out trade agreements between the United States and other countries and do the work of being political. But a lot of that work is what's called soft power, which is relationships, which is relationship building. And still in the United, still in the world. Alcohol is one of the primary lubricants for yep. um, mediation, for contract conflict resolution, for building trust, you know, and um, 
you, you literally, you cannot trust somebody unless you drink with them. It's, it's sort of like the prevailing wisdom. Um, and there's also this prevailing delusion that, you know, by seeing somebody when they're drunk, you really see who they really are. It's a truth serum. Um, now, that's, I don't know if that, that's debatable, <laughs> perhaps, because, <laughs> but, but, you know, growing up, I saw that, that alcohol was this phenomenal elixir that sort of made, you know, part of our lives, you know, really rich and, and, and amazing, and my dad's career quite amazing. And we did that, we continue to do that. And then I continue to do that in my own work when I uh, became a studio executive and worked in the film business. And, and um, especially with a lot of focus on international, I was uh, in, in working in marketing, international marketing, international film financing, distribution, et cetera. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a good fair amount of drinking in the United States, obviously, but overseas, I mean, you know, you go to France for the Cannes Film Festival, you're, everybody is just, blotto tank drinking constantly getting shit done i mean they're all under control but drinking is fundamental so it was my job to i had this american express card that you know it should have melted because i was just all <laughs> buying drinks for people always expensing drinks at one point i remember i had to go to the cap du jour and you know buy movie stars you know that they, they hadn't paid their tab and i think it was bruce willis and, and a couple other people and i I had to shell out $25,000 in cash because they hadn't paid their bar bill. I mean, it was just like, that's what you did. And, and, and it's a lot, you know, alcohol was a way to sort of curry favor, to influence people to, and, and the amount of drinks and, and parties that you gave would, that would build up your, your social capital and the favor bank, because, you know, Hollywood is really is driven mostly by the checks and balances of who owes whom what. And right. so you're the, you're as the most effective you can be is the more uh, capital and favor capital that you build up and the more influence capital that you build up. And then you cash in those chips when you need them, when you need like a certain actor to be in a certain movie or you need certain financing for a certain movie, you know, then you activate those chips and you make the call. You're like, hey, bud, great to see you. Remember that party we went to? I mean, you don't tell that person you owe me, but Everybody knows that they owe you, you know, if you've built up your political capital, right? And alcohol is a key component of that political power capital that you build up over time in Hollywood. And you're not going to build up political capital by giving people free donuts. I mean, right. maybe right. certain people, you know, maybe if you work for, you know, Nickelodeon, but but for the rest of us, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's part of that. And so lavish parties, expense accounts, champagne on the boat, et cetera. And I'm not saying everybody's getting shit-based. Most people would just drink responsibly, but alcohol is a big thing. So I was around that all the time. And then when I went off on my own and I got uh, as a screenwriter and I hit some early successes, I got paid very handsomely. And um, I'm just about to be paid very handsomely on another deal. And, and uh, you know, I've been lucky. I, I don't think I'm particularly talented. Some people think I am. I think I, I've got it okay. I'm a good working writer. Like I get the job done and have made a couple movies and, and I've sold a couple TV shows and, you know, I get brought in to do some work on, on rewrites, things here and there. I mean, I'm not at the top, but, but I'm okay with that too. Like working writer, making a living at it is, is fine. But uh, there were moments when I was just waiting around or moments when I thought, Oh, you know what? Why didn't I make a million dollars on that script? I should have, or, Oh God, you know why they, they produced the movie, but God, the director really made a stupid casting decision. That's not the movie that I had in my head at all. God, I don't even know if I want to go to the premiere. I mean, there's all these sort of different variables in the, in the, in the motion picture business, everything that, that a lot of people 
you know, I think are under, not just me, but are under that stress of like anxiety. And I think they tend to medicate to cover time, to cover uncertainty and to cover anxiety of change. And so I was one of those people. And so I finally, you know, I said, I got to stop this because the, the, because as, as you more get into more alcohol delusions, like they call it the alcohol matrix, you know, you tend to think, oh, you know, alcohol really does help me be more creative. And then you start to think that, that you could be more creative if you drink. And then you, you look at what you just wrote the night before when you were drinking and you're like, what the fuck is this? I can't <laughs> and then you, you delete it all and you realize that that's not helping you at all. And I, I would never write and drink, but certain people like there's this whole idea. And I write about this in addicted in film, this whole romantic notion that, you know, Hemingway was, was Hemingway because he drank yeah, or, right. you know, uh, all these, all these, you know, Faulkner, could only be Faulkner because he knew the deep truth that it was revealed through drunkenness. I mean, that's, I don't think that's true. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> we lost, we've lost some really talented people to alcohol abuse that could have lived longer and produced great works. And yeah, I mean, there is something to say that like alcohol releases parts of a per person's mind that can be, that can have great things. I mean, there's no question about it. And this is why I also write in the book, there's a great book called, um, a great movie called Another Round, uh, uh, mm. made by a Danish director um, that basically set, has these three guys or four guys say, you know what, there's this report I just read that like if we maintain a 0 0.05 alcohol level all day long, our lives will be much better. They're like, well, let's try it because their lives really suck. You know, they're bad relationships, horrible jobs, don't like their people, nobody likes them, they're boring. And so they try it and over the course of the film, like great things happen. So a teacher who really sucks at being a teacher has a couple of drinks and suddenly he's more open, he's more fun, he's more jovial, he makes connections, he engages with the students more, he releases parts of himself, um, becomes less inhibited. Now, those are all legitimate outcomes that lead to good things. And so I think there's examples of that in everyday life that most people realize that there are benefits to drugs and alcohol. It's not all doom and gloom in the short term. In the long term, it is. But in the short term, there are benefits. And, and we get blinded to that truth and that possibility uh, because of our early positive uh, experiences with drugs and alcohol. Otherwise, why would we do them again if they weren't positive? Right, you right, know? right. So, but, but unfortunately, that's the nature of addiction is that when you do something great and something great happens as a result and you feel good about it, you want more of it more often. That's just the nature of the mind. Yeah. Well, it's the, the, the good old saying, right? It was fun until it wasn't, right? <laughs> well, yes. Well, I mean, that's um, yes, yes. It's And that's what the movie is really all about. It's it's they they continue their experiment up the dosages with predictable results. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Ted, if uh, people want to find out more about uh, recovery movie meetups, maybe get the uh, book Addicted in Film. I think I'm about quarter of the way through. It's a lot of fun for me as a film buff, film student. Uh, you know, I, I you don't have to be like me, someone that studied this stuff and got a degree in it to enjoy it. It's a it's a good read for anybody that just enjoys film. How can they get the the book and recovery movie meetups? Well, um, Addicted in Film is available on Amazon. Just, you know, search for Addicted in Film, Ted Perkins, and up it'll come. And if you're interested in uh, maybe starting or attending or starting a recovery movie meetup where you 
where you uh, meet with other people who have seen a movie or watch, or you want to watch a movie with other people and then use the workbook to, to go through exercises. Or if you just want to buy a copy of the workbook, um, just contact, uh, just go to our website. It's all there. The shop's there. You can buy t-shirts, you can buy workbooks, you can buy a hundred workbooks, you buy a thousand workbooks. You can start a meeting. Um, you can find the films with all the links to where to download each film, or where to buy them or rent them, or even how to get the DVDs. I make it super easy. It's just like a one-stop shop. And that's recoverymoviemeetups.com. And, um, you know, anybody who's interested in that, but, you know, and I'm just flattered beyond belief that that you're reading my book. I, I think uh, it's my little contribution to, you know, the pantheon of fun, fantastic observations about um, addiction and recovery and so many helpful authors and so many really talented people that have gone before me. I'm not even in that league. I just wanted to write a book that meshes two things, which I think I know a little bit about, which is, okay, I've been through addiction and recovery. I know a lot about it, I guess. And I've been a facilitator for many years. And also I know the film business and I, and I watched a hundred movies in a hundred days and learned a lot. And I just wanted to kind of share some of the things that some of my observations, and I hope they're, they're helping other people. And people say that when, after they read addicted in film, that it kind of inspires them to not just go back and see the movies again, but you know, the lessons learned are actually kind of powerful. And I, I get occasionally, I'll get an email saying, Oh, I just read this paragraph in your book and it really helped me. And, you know, I've decided not to, not to take heroin today. I'm like, wow, what a great win. You know, know, it makes it all worthwhile. Right. Absolutely. Mr. Anderson. Ted, thank you so much. It's just been an absolute pleasure meeting you and talking with you. And, uh, you know, any friend of Jason's is a friend of mine. That's, that's, that's for sure. Um, I hope we get to do this again because uh, I'd, I'd love to pick your brain on some other issues as well. So we'll, we'll reach out if you don't mind coming back on. Oh, I would love to have me on every day. If you like, I love, talking. <laughs> I, I love people who were, you know, who were uh, in it to win it and to be of service to others because they know what it's like. I mean, you, you, we know what it's like. We know that moment where, you know, where you kind of want to, throw yourself off a building because you don't think that there's a way out, but there is. And, you know, we're all living proof. And I think we're all in the business of trying to share that good news with other people in a way that makes sense so that it's not beating them over the head. It's just giving them information they need. And you guys are doing a great service to do that. So keep up the good work. And for all your audience, thank you so much for listening to us, for listening to me blabber away about my stuff. (laughs) You got it, Ted. Thank you so much. If you or a loved one is struggling with addiction, please call Parents and Addicts in Need at 559-579-1551 or check us out online at painnonprofit.org. Follow us on social media at Pain Nonprofit. Please subscribe to the podcast and share with others wherever you get podcasts and on YouTube. To donate, please click the link in the description and help us save more lives gripped by addiction.